Nothing. Nothing but. Nothing but net. Net, net, net. Welcome to Nothing But Net, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. Before we get into the meat of today's show, let's recap on why there's so much interest and buzz around net, net, net properties. Triple net properties are commercial real estate investments where the tenants, usually brand name corporations, pay you rent every month. Can you say mailbox money? In addition, they pay the real estate taxes, insurance, and maintenance for the property. No toilets, termites, or taxes. What's not to like? You can remember what net, 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 or triple net stands for by using TIM, Taxes, Insurance, and Maintenance. With triple net properties, there's lower risk income and cash flow because rents are guaranteed by strong credit tenants. Preservation of wealth because rent increases and property appreciation are bulwarks against inflation and a great store of value. Tax efficiency. The government wants investment in commercial real estate, so they provide inducements through depreciation and deductions which shelter income from taxation. Tax deferral, which gives potential for infinite tax deferral with 1031 exchanges, which are very popular in the triple net space. Triple net properties are a tangible asset, and as Mark Twain once said, buy land, they ain't making any more of it. Hello and welcome back to the Nothing But Net podcast, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. I'm your host, Adam Carswell, joined by my co-host, as always, Michael Flight of Liberty Real Estate Fund. Michael, happy to have you here. And speaking of Liberty Real Estate Fund, I know we've got some exciting things on the horizon. Before we dive into the exciting guests that we have for our listeners today, could you kind of just give us a quick update on everything that we have going on at Liberty? Well, there's some exciting news. We've been working on Liberty Fund for more than a year now. We had some hiccups back in December, doing anything new, especially doing something as new as uh, security tokens. We had to get uh, the correct financial and most tax efficient structure for it. So we had a little bit of a hiccup in December with getting the non-US investors the most tax efficient structure. We had to redo some of the corporate structure and that's being set up in the Cayman Islands right now. And we should be ready to launch the fund in mid-March now. So Fantastic. but uh, really excited, really been you know meeting a ton of great people and it's interesting, but it's also, uh, as I like to describe, sometimes they describe the technology as like it can do this. And then it turns out, well, it really doesn't do that yet. <laughs> so, so, so that's that's where we're at with that, but we're really excited about it. Fantastic. And yeah, so guys, for more information on Liberty Fund, you can go to, to libertyfund.io and get all the updates and information there. Shifting gears back to our show today, the Nothing But Net podcast, we have an absolute goldmine of information coming your way through Mr. Ralph Cram. And Mr. Cram is the president and manager of Envoy Net Lease Properties or Partners, excuse me, LLC, a real estate finance company specializing in single tenant net lease properties. He is responsible for providing strategy, marketing, and investment advice on all aspects of net lease property investment in single-tenant commercial, medical, and industrial properties. Mr. Cram has underwritten, acquired, or financed $1.5 billion of real estate assets across all product types and geographic markets over his 25-plus years in commercial real estate. He co-founded Envoy in 2011 to fill a void in the market. 
providing equity and gap financing to developers of built-to-suit single-tenant net lease properties. In 2009, he was awarded membership into the prestigious Counselor of Real Estate Association for his work advising investors regarding investments in alternative real estate strategies. He earned his CFA designation in 1995 and is an active member of the Chartered Financial Analyst Society of Chicago and the CFA Institute. That's only a small portion of this, this man's resume, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a very, very honored to have Ralph Cram here with us today. Mr. Cram, uh, you know, I wanted to have Michael kind of give some, some context here too, but I guess we'll, we'll go to Mr. Cram first and then back to Michael for, for any other fillers. So Mr. Cram, happy to have you here and any opening remarks for our listeners. For this panel, I've been involved in the net lease industry since the early 1990s. Really, the net lease industry took off, or at least for individual investors, in 1987 when the tax changes happened, and a lot of people had passive losses from the tax changes, and, and you could only use them against passive gains. So the only real estate syndications that were available at that time that people wanted to invest in were net lease, all cash, no debt, very conservative net lease funds where they would match off their passive losses from all the tax syndication deals that blew up in the 80s with their, their losses with uh, funds that had no mortgages. That was the number one selling thing is that there's no way a lender could take the property away from you. And at that time, they were about 78% cash flow vehicles and people used them to match it against their passive losses and were able to have a 8% non-taxable or post-tax return. So that's kind of where the net lease industry started. And over the years, there's been various negation groups, uh, CNL that we talked about. I start, I was with one called Robin Real Estate Funds. There was Franchise Finance Corporation America, which started out doing franchise finance restaurants on sale, lease back and build a suit nature. And they eventually were bought by GE Capital. And GE Capital took them from a billion to about six or $7 billion at one time. They're one of the largest REITs in the country, or net lease funds in the country. There's been a long history net lease syndication for individual investors for the past 30 years. And awesome. I want to follow up because Ralph is too modest to talk about some of the stuff. Ralph has been at the birth of this business type of thing. I mean, there, there was net lease properties, but in terms of packaging it into an investment product, Ralph is right there. Ralph has not only done financing, he's done acquisitions, but he also started his own real estate investment trust to invest in movie theaters. Ralph has even you know, been invited to speak in Shanghai and, and Singapore. So I've met Ralph early in the, the 1990s. I can't remember back that far when. I do remember we used to hang out in some of the same um, meetings in Chicago commercial real estate. We are honored to have you here. And one of the things when I was talking about with Adam that we need a thing to talk about financing net lease real estate and the go-to guy in my mind, because Ralph has not only financed a bunch of things, but also put together an excellent financing product for developers to develop net lease product, but it's also bought and owned properties too. So with that, Adam, I'll, I'll kick it back to you. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I want to, you know, again, we're talking about experience here and we've got you on the call and then Ralph with another 25 plus years, you know, we're going into the 50, 60 years of collective experience on this call. And I just want to highlight, it was fun before the call. We kind of joked about how rich dad, poor dad was something that you guys never had access to when getting started. And so this is really, you know, learning from experts in the industry who can provide you with resources beyond what most people even know is the entrance into, into real estate. So 
I mean, Michael, I guess I want to flip it back over to you because I know you're going to be able to ask a more focused question right. here to well, kick we'll, things off. We'll start what? off with, with something easy. Ralph, you've been doing financing for net lease properties for a while. What does a lender now, and this is just a general thing, not necessarily, you know, for your developer client, but what would a lender, you know, mainly underwrite on a net lease property? If you, if somebody, if I brought you a, a property and said, I wanted to, to finance this, what does a lender look for? The first thing in the commercial area is whether the property is investment grade or non-investment grade. What does that mean? That means that does it have a credit rating from S&P or Moody's? And is it just like the bond? Is it considered to be a junk bond or a junk rating or an investment grade? For S&P, that means a triple B minus or better. And so that you have to realize that a net lease property, let's just take one with 15 years, you have to think of it as like a bond with a, I like to say a bond with a rock at the end. You get 15 years of, of income and that's scary if it's from an investment grade company, it's the same as 15 year bond take. The difference between that and the bond is at the end of the 15 years, the borrower gives you back your $1,000. At the end of the 15 years in a real estate net lease deal, the tenant either renews for five years or 10 years and you get continual real estate income, or they give you back the building and say, we're done with it. So that's what you have to underwrite. And so the value of the real estate is important to a lender at the beginning of a lease, but really they're looking at the cash flow of the, of the property against your debt service, and you're gonna have some amortization. So you have to be careful because you buy, let's say, a net lease property at 6%, and you can probably get three to three and a half percent cash flow, you sit there and you calculate and say, wow, I'm making you a 10% cash and cash yield. But then the lender's going to come in and say, well, we want you to amortize your loan down over 25 years. Well, there's a difference between your interest rate and your loan constant. Your loan constant, just like your house, includes your principal payment. So it's going to have your interest and your principal payment, and then that's going to be deducted from your net lease rent. And so that's the true cash flow you're going to have on that property. Now, at the same time, you're paying down that debt. So after five years, let's just say you sell it to someone else, you will get that money back if you sell it at the same price you bought it for or, or greater. So it's not like that principal goes away, just like your house. You pay down your mortgage, you sell the house, you can sell your house at the same price that you bought it for, but you're going to get all that principal back that you pay down when you sell your house. And that's the same thing when you, you finance a net lease property, is that your cash flow is going to be the cash you're going to get in your pocket on an annual basis and people, you'll hear the term called cash and cash return. And that's what you're going to receive on an annual basis, cash return after you pay your mortgage. And then you're going to hear your annual net income. And that's what's going to be reported to the IRS. It can be two forms, it can be pre-tax or post-tax. The great thing about real estate is you get depreciation. So your, your net income is kind of like what you're going to receive if you sell your property for what you bought it for. That would be like looking at your cash flow from just an interest-only point of view. And then your net income for the IRS is after you take the depreciation out of that cash flow stream. And if you can, right now until the end of 22, so Biden takes it away from us, you can do accelerated depreciation. So you can almost write off the whole, in, especially in new developments, you can write off the whole upfront cost of everything except the land of the property you buy. So there's a lot of, currently a lot of tax benefits out there. Probably go in and talk a little bit about 1031 tax free exchanges. That's for more advanced investors that already have investment properties. 
and they're looking for a less management-intensive way, and that's a whole segment of the market that the individual investors are in, where they're selling, you get to be 65 or 70, and you're tired of, as Brad Thomas would say, the three T's, crash, tenants, and taxes, and you want to just get a check in the mail, you sell your property, and then there's a process through the tax code called the Section 1031, and you follow that process, and you can roll your proceeds over into a new property, and what a, a lot of people at that age bracket and rolling them into passive investments like these properties, where all they do is get a check at the end, you know, they get a check in the mail every month. And they don't have to worry about any tenants calling them in the middle of the night about fixing toilets or anything like that. So that is another section of the market that is attractive to individual investors. That's a long-winded answer to your question, but there you go. I think I, I yeah, think well, I, I think I think Ralph just summarized every episode we've had on the show in one answer. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, we, we actually never needed to do the, uh, the the podcast at all. We could have just had Ralph come on and just do a, like a three minute, you know, his three minute spiel and we're done. So, but no, I wanted to go back because I have never heard the term bond with a rock at the end. We use the, you know, probably a gentler term bonds wrapped in real estate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's our internal joke here. But, you know, instead of getting your principal back, you're going to get this building, some right. more concrete block, and you're going to get the real estate back. Now, at the time, in a lot of a lot of the tenants that you're good at your due diligence and everything, they're going to renew. I mean, we're, we're purchasing for our clients this week a 25-year-old Wendy's that five years ago was recast into another 20-year lease. And we're purchasing it for our client and uh, it has 15 years left on the lease and it's going to be there for another 15 years. It's making, it's uh, slightly above the average for Wendy's. We like to call it a spectacularly boring property. It's not going to make you rich, but we know for the next 15 years that Wendy's, it's outside of suburban uh, Lansing, Michigan. Those parents after school, high school is down the street. They're going to come and feed their kids, and they've been doing it for the last 25 years. They'll do it for the, at least the next 15. And we think and there's another three, five-year options. They'll exercise those options. So, you know, that's what you're looking for when you're buying all these properties is the surety of income. You know, it is a bond, like payment, a long-term payment. There's not a lot of upside. But if you're looking for income, they're a great investment. Yeah, I want to stress what you just said there because I used the example of a Walgreens that we had that was done before zip codes were done, you know, the lease. And we renewed them and, and they built a new building and it's another 50-year lease. But, you know, I just want to stress, you know, what you just said there because it, it's just golden. It's like you are getting a set amount of income since the tenant is paying all the expenses you're not going to get any surprises. You're not going to get, as I like to describe here in the Chicago area, you're not going to get hit with all the extra snow plowing charges because the tenant's going to take care of that. The tenant's going to pay that. If the real estate taxes go up, you're not going to pay that. The tenant's going to pay that. So I love the, you know, what you just said is stability and security. It's like, that's what you're getting with net lease properties. I would like to circle back because your original started out with the difference between uh, investment grade tenant and a non-investment grade tenant. So I'm going to ask you one specific question. Was the Wendy's a uh, corporate store or is it a franchisee? And the other thing is, can you tell us a little bit about the difference between financing an investment grade and a non-investment grade tenant? 
That's a good question. The property we're buying is a franchisee property. It's a private owner. It's not Wendy's corporate on the lease. There are Wendy corporate leases. We're buying a franchisee deal partly because the yield is about 50 basis points higher than the corporate deals. So you get a higher yield. Also, the franchisee has about 59 Wendy's. And what we've noticed, and you have to do some due diligence on your franchise, but the one thing we like about this franchisee is all of his units are in the state of Michigan. They are known for, they have two other restaurant concepts and they're, they're all in the state of Michigan. They know Michigan like the back of their hand. And so that's kind of what you're investing there. And as I said, you got the Wendy's concept. So you're really investing in their marketing, their products. And then you look at the operator to make sure that the operator is a good operator and that they're conscientious, their employees, the property. We do a property condition report on older properties to make sure that they're upkeeping the property, even though they're responsible for the property themselves. You can learn a lot by doing a property condition report because then you'll find out whether or not they've been maintaining the HVAC, the roof. And even though they're responsible for repairing it and everything, you kind of get a good idea of how they run their operations, especially in the franchise food area. It's kind of, if you ever read the old book, uh, Grinding It Out, about McDonald's, it's about the best operators, the ones that are on top of all the details. So, and what was the second part? I'm no, I, I, I want to I stop you there because, I, I mean, you just keep bringing us into these uh, directions that are just, you know, literal gold mines. So the whole thing, and I, I've mentioned it to a few people, I've got McDonald's corporate and I've got McDonald's franchisees. And sometimes, and I would say in a lot of situations, the McDonald's franchisees probably operate the store better because... They are literally the owners of the, the thing. And the corporate guys are kind of working for, you know, the corporation. So that's just been my experience. But, you know, you just, you know, hit the nail on the head. And then you just talked about how you would underwrite a franchisee. And there you got a little bit of a, a higher cap rate on it because it's not the Wendy's corporate. It is a franchisee, but then you went and looked into how the franchisee ran his operations. And, you know, the, the big thing is, is that he's extremely familiar with the markets that he's operating in. I mean, he's obviously been in business for a while, correct? Yeah. And, and, and then the, the multi-store chain. I mean, I think what a lot of people don't realize is some of these franchisees sometimes are actually bigger than the franchisors. I mean, I've seen franchisees uh, like Applebee's, some of those guys had like 800 stores, you know? Well, we just, I just listened to a podcast from Michael Flynn of the Flynn Restaurant Group. They're the largest franchisee in the country and they're buying NPC, uh, which has 900 Pizza Hut franchises and 400 Wendy's. They're buying 200 of Wendy's. They'll have two and a half billion dollars worth of revenue next year. Yeah. Um, they are the largest Applebee's franchisee in the country. I think they have four or 500 of them. And they're great operators. They incentivize all their managers. And that's getting back to your McDonald's franchisee versus corporate. The big difference is when you make an extra dollar as a franchisee, you get to keep about, after your food costs, you get to keep about 93% of them after you pay your royalties and your advertising. A corporate guy doesn't really get, he gets a little bit more towards his bonus, but he's really not that focused on making the extra dollar. So there's a big difference. You have a well-motivated franchisee, they'll run their restaurants as good or better than the others. And just one sidebar, size of franchisees, we like to tell our clients to look for about 20 units. Here's another kind of uh, 
Katie and I like to say, I'm always looking out for the back truck. Because if your tenant, who's an individual, gets hit by a Mack truck, and you have eight units, he's usually the center of the universe, mm-hmm. and everything goes through him, and then so you have, a, you have a crisis on your hand. Pretty much on any franchisee who has 10 units or less, unless they're multi-chain operators. But when they get to 15 to 20, they have to start putting managers in place, CFOs in place. But there's a corporate organization there that can run the operation. And, and they, really, what you're saying is they've got economy of scale. To, right. Okay. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. So go no, ahead. You're starting to get to a point where these guys look like a company versus a guy with eight rest, with five restaurants. And that's the big important. Even though you have Wendy's or something else, to have that corporate uh, structure is important as a landlord because things don't fall through the cracks. And they don't. And the other thing is, you might over the term lease the smaller franchisees might sell out to a larger franchisee. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's not, not so good. So that's just a little thing that we tell people is to look at the size of the franchisee to make sure that they have not only the operating experience but the kind of the corporate background to make sure that your rent payment is going to happen. See, that's another thing I learned today, the lender's Mack truck test. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the case. And the, getting back to like non-investment grade or, or franchise, right, right. the big thing in the world of lending is recourse or non-recourse. If you're investment grade, you can find lenders who will only underwrite the deal, which is the transaction. And you can get 55 to 65% loan-to-value financing. For some reason, 10 years from now, the tenant goes bankrupt or something. The land, you don't have to pay the lender back his whole loan proceeds. You're just going to give him the keys and it's his problem. When you have non-investment grade tenants or smaller tenants or franchisee tenants, a lot of times you're going to have to put in recourse. And it's a good market right now. It used to be you had to pledge 100% of your balance sheet or 100% of the loan. But we've seen banks go down to 25% recourse. So if like you you are guaranteeing, let's say the property is a million dollars and loan is 750,000, 75% loan to value, 25% of that, I'm guessing there's about 125,000. You only have to get guarantee that $125,000 if there's a problem versus the whole 750. So that's something to look for when you finance properties is, First question is, is it recourse, non-recourse? And the next question is, if it's recourse, how much recourse? Do I have to guarantee the whole loan or just part of it? And that's something that a lot of people at the end of the day say, I'm not willing to arrest all my net worth on this one tenant. And so that's why investing in a fund where you have multiple properties and don't have to do non-recourse, that is kind of an area to go into if you don't want to get the full property benefits. What you learn, lose a little bit when you go to a fund uh, structure is you lose some of the tax benefits. If you own the property, you can sell it when you want it, want to and you can finance it the way you want to and you get pretty much all the tax benefits for it. So that's just the difference between being in a fund and being in a fund that buys at least properties in a fund that, uh, or being on your own and buying an individual property. And that's one of the, the reasons why we decided to go the fund route. We've been in shopping centers since 1986. We've been in net lease properties. We've done portfolios of, of net lease properties. And we just saw the migration of tenants away from shopping centers and towards more freestanding properties and you know drive throughs and things like that. But the thing that always scared me was, you know, with a shopping center, you've got a multiple amount of tenants. So if one of them goes, you know, you, you don't have them all going. 
And so that's when, when we originally decided to, to start designing a fund. We wanted a fund that was going to be internet resistant and across a few different various industries, a lot of different brand names and, you know, growing high growth markets so that it's diversification of geography and things like that. So you really hit it on the head, you know, with what we're doing and just, you know, to kind of talk a little bit more. One of the things that uh, the reason why we decided to try and pioneer going into security tokens is because there's much more flexibility from the investor standpoint. So after a one-year lockup period, the investor could potentially sell or trade or go peer-to-peer with exchanging their their investment in in the, uh, the fund. So that's what we're we're trying to pull together. But I, I appreciate you hitting on on a, on a lot of this stuff. And then with the financing, do you get a better rate with a credit tenant versus a non-credit tenant? Usually you do. It really depends on your leverage point. If, but most of the time, you probably get between 50 and 100 basis points on an investment grade from a loan to value. If you do 65 to 65, it's between 50 to 75 basis points cheaper. People are looking at what the underlying credit is and kind of in today's market, most B credits 10-year money. I just saw one went off at 2%. So, you know, if they can earn 3% or three and a quarter, they're looking at that. And then when you look at non-investment grade, you're looking at, you know, three and a half to 4% in some of those corporates. So people want to earn four and a half to 5% on their, their mortgages. So there is a continuity of credit pricing across all the markets. They're not, in, when I started in real estate, when the covered wagons were out there and everything, uh, you know, there were se- there were separate, you know, capital markets. If banks would lend one way, you know, there was a thing called SNL, they would lend a different way, or insurance company money, and all were like private pools of money. But pretty much everything today gets back to the public market and gets priced. Even if it's not the top part, the bottom part of almost every piece of debt out there now is in the public realm in some some sort, either on a balance sheet of a public company or in, inside of a a commercial mortgage-backed security of some sort. And then I'd like to know a little bit more. Are you, with Envoy, I know you've put together this product and the strategy of doing takeout loans for developers. Do you also lend on existing properties? Envoy, we created Envoy. We started out as a JV equity shop in 2011 when the world was frozen up and everyone's like, the only thing that was, again, another another period of lack of liquidity. And so people, we, one of my clients came to me and said, we have a developer who does family dollars for it. And he went from, they asked him to go from three to 10 stores in a year and he didn't have enough money. And so they asked me to go down and research that and see if we can put together some kind of fund to provide JV equity for him. And we did, and I, I put together things and, and we, between his family office and a money manager out of New York, we started on one. So we started providing that these a JV equity, and we still do that as part of our business today. But in 2014, with a, with a lot of money coming back into the market on the equity side, a lot of the developers are saying, well, we can't find construction. I have all the equity money I need. I can't find a construction loan. So, and they were like coming to us and saying, if you can structure a loan where it's both the equity and, and the debt, we'd love to do deal, you know, deals with you. So we started working with a, a lender actually here in Chicago. And that has the ability to go anywhere in the country, and we would put together what's called an AV structure. Even though it's one mortgage, it's two notes on underneath it, getting a little complicated, but 
when you mortgage a piece of property, there's always one mortgage on a property. But underneath it, that mortgage could have one, two, three, four, or five different mortgages. Some of these CMPS mortgages, you hear like a billion dollar office building being done. There's only one mortgage on it. But there could be 12 to 15 notes underneath it from to various parties with various participating agreements and side agreements and so forth. So just remember the note is the credit instrument. The mortgage is the security agreement. So you don't really need the mortgage as a lender until you have to foreclose. That gives you the right to foreclose on the property. Hopefully you never have to do that because the borrower borrows the money and pays it off, pays the note off, which extinguishes as a borrower, you should always get the mortgage extinguished when you pay off the note. And so that releases the mortgage. And so you can go out, if you're selling the property, the next guy can put a mortgage on it. Or if you paid it off and you want to refinance it, you can refinance the property. But that's, so what we did, getting back to, to what we did is we, we teamed up with this bank and, and provided 95% loan cost uh, construction loan financing for developers of dollar stores. We did a CVS store. We've done about, now we've, Envoy's done 80 deals since 19, 2011 and nope. closing a couple more next week. And then we got our own, after that, we were able to convince our bank to give us our own line of credit and start doing our own first mortgage deals instead of taking fee notes, which is basically a, a support, it, it's a second mortgage loan on a property. So we're starting to make our own loans and uh, borrowing money against a credit facility. And that allowed us to be our own lender. And which, what, what does that mean? We were the face to the borrower. We made the mortgage documents, we serviced the mortgage, and that progressed into a large relationship with a private equity firm. So now we have about $200 million construction loan fund that we go out and we now work with bigger developers that are building this year. We're doing a lot of convenience stores, 7-Elevens. We financed six of them last year. I think we're on track to do about 15 of them this year. And that, so that's on our debt side. We've had a JV equity portfolio. And what we're trying to do for the developer is give him all the different capital sources he needs to build his property. So if he has a bank relationship, we can come in as JV equity partner. If he doesn't have a bank relationship, we can lend him up to 100% loan costs on investment grade properties. And so he doesn't need to find any other equity partners to bring to the table. And that's kind of our niche. And there are one or two other guys that are in our niche, but that's we're very focused on that lease construction loans, bridge loans, kind of what I call the value add part of net leases. And there's not a lot of value add to a net lease because once it's made, it's pretty much in that position for the next 15 years, 20 years. So there's not a lot of ways to value add except for creating the net lease at the beginning of the process. All right, I've got a, a few questions for you. Number one, these developers typically have a relationship with a tenant. And so that's why, and so why would the tenant not build their own properties? Why would they, you know, have a developer, you know, go out and build the properties for them? There's several reasons. Uh, one of them is market knowledge. Well, first is how fast you want to grow. If you really want to grow fast, it, you just can't get enough people internally and you get a pretty large bureaucratic system if you do that. Two, a lot of developers, everyone thinks developers make a lot of money. But there's a lot of times you look at eight sites and you pick two and you get one through, it takes you a year to get through the permitting process. Well, the developer specking all that time and money during that time, it could be a uh, small property, it could be a hundred grand. 
And, you know, people don't understand the opportunity cost. Well, if you're paying salaries, that opportunity cost becomes real cost if you're a tenant and you have to pay salaries of those people showing up at six o'clock at night for a board meeting or a planning commission meeting or meeting with the aldermans or doing whatever you need to do, plus all the other activities you do to get a property approved in a community. It's better to work with a developer. The other thing that's going on from an accounting point of view is you use developers, and this was much more so, there's recent accounting rules that have changed on lease treatment. But it used to be that if a developer built it, it was treated as an operating lease for accounting purposes, and so you didn't need to put it on your balance sheet. That's changed somewhat. It's not a big, really. The other issue is what kind of business are you in? Are you in the fast food business or are you in the real estate business? And what happens is when you see some of these guys, especially franchisees, that try to get in the real estate business and not in, in, as well as operate their real, their franchises, that they don't do either very well. And so it's really about focus. And, you know, you pay a developer, you know, how the game works is the developer builds the property for return on cost of X. Let's say it's 8%. And then the developer turns around, builds it. Now he has a cash flow stream that he built for 8%. And he turns around and sells it to, to an individual investor for 6% return. Well, if you divide those rent streams by 8%, the rent stream by 6%, there's usually about a 15 to 20% profit margin there. And then less, less all the costs of selling the property. So that's how a developer makes his money is by uh, what we call the spread between the return on, on cost, on his cost, versus what he can sell the finished product for uh, on a cap rate basis. That, that is great. And I, I really appreciate that, that answer. Does the developer, when you lend the money to them, do they need a takeout or somebody there to buy it or do they build it? Do they get the lease done, build it, and then go and either refinance out of it or um, sell it? Most of our clients are what's called merchant builders, which means they build and sell. About 10% of them kind of build a few and keep a few. We underwrite, we ask the developer upfront, are you going to keep it or are you going to sell it? And that really determines what our lending levels are because if you're selling it, we usually max out around 80% loan to value. If you're refinancing it, we look at what you can refinance it to, which is usually around 70 75% loan to value. And that kind of determines the loan proceeds. So you can do either way with us. We're, we're agnostic. There's a whole thing about out there, there are, pre, there are REITs that will finance 100% of the cost for the developers, but they want to own the property at the end of the day. And you end up selling it to them for not the 6% cap or the 65 to 675 so you lose a fair amount of your profit. What's advantageous for dealing with Envoy, you know, ring the brass bell here, <laughs> uh, is that the developer can, he can make his decision later on whether he wants to keep the deal. If he thinks the market's hot and the cap rates are going to fall, he doesn't have to lock in his cap rate spread, and or he, he can sell it to someone else at the end, or refinance it at the end of the day. So it gives him maximum flexibility. Well, this is why I love talking with experts like Ralph, because I, I can tell you that I've learned some things, you know, on this call today. And he's also reignited some things that I forgot, like, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, too. So <laughs> I, I just want to thank you very much, Ralph. I mean, just the, uh, the the amount of information and wisdom that and experience that you have you know put together here. Really, we really appreciate it. So, Adam, why don't you uh, do you have any questions? 
I mean, uh, no, I mean, you summarize it fantastic there. And I think the only other question, follow up question is Ralph, you know, what, uh, what parting words of wisdom do you have for our community before we close out the interview? I would, if you really want to get into net lease real estate, I would start with either funds or REITs and read a lot. You know, as we were talking about, you can't get enough reading in real estate and you got you just got to continue to read. So if you want to learn something about REITs, go get the 10 Ks of, you know, Realty Income Corp, WP Carrier, those type of things, you know, read, read some PPMs. There's a lot of, you get on GlobeNet, they have their own net lease e-books out there. The most important thing for an investor in real estate is to be educated because you're always going to find out something that later, and it's much cheaper to read it than learn it in real estate. Yeah, I, I always say that my education was extremely expensive in real estate because it was usually made with mistakes. Right. I I paid for a couple of Harvard educations over my years. Real quick, what were, uh, for you guys, I mean, what were some, just real quick, what were some of the fundamental books to kind of get you into real estate that maybe um, a lot of people now have forgotten about or don't really give much credit to? Well, on that leases, there's a good book. I'm, I'm plugging a friend's book. It's Investing in Real Estate, Jonathan Hip. H-I-P-P, you can get it on Amazon.com, uh, is a good basic book on that lease. Um, it, it's for investors, not just REITs. So that's a good good uh, a book. Gosh, there's... You know, Michael Michael Flight has a book coming out soon, too, on the same topic. Okay. <laughs> good. Bye, Michaels. Uh, <laughs> no, no. We, we, if, if I want people to get a, a wide variety of you know, information. And I'm trying to think of... Um, there's a guy... Westwood, his name is Stephen. I can't remember what his name is. And he had a really good book on on investing in real estate too. It, it was done you know, somewhere in the, the 80s or 90s. And I can't remember what his uh, last name is now. There's just a textbook called The Fundamentals of Real Estate that, that you can look online for. You can go to, the other thing is to go out to some of the real estate programs out there. You know, I'm plugging my uh, University of Wisconsin alumni group. But if you go out and look at their syllabuses, there's, especially for the real estate finance, the real estate fundamental uh, classes, uh, those textbooks are really good. And you won't be listening to people who have points of view that they're trying to sell you on. So th- those are pretty good. Guys, I know the minute, f- 15 minutes after we get off this phone call, I'll have three <laughs> books. That we, uh, so that's, I'll leave it at that. That's good. That's fantastic. I just wrote down, I mean, the fundamentals of real estate, that sounds like a good book to read. <laughs> I'm going to look it up. Michael. Uh, and there's a, if you, you somewhat wonkish, it's a white paper by James Craskamp. And it's the same title, the fundamentals of real estate. It was ULI. It's been out of print, but it really goes into, if you want to understand real estate from a macro point of view about the, the three areas, it, it depends on how geekish you want to get into real estate. And, but it's a fun 30-page read that just tells you, you know, how things get done in real estate and from a big picture. And a lot of times that's good for investors just so they can understand. You get all this information. You just don't have the framework to put stuff into. And when people talk about, you know, there's a, a public, there's, there's three sides to real estate. There's the physical property side. There's the income financial side, and then what I call the uh, the political side. That's where things like rental policies, you know, building permits, 
zoning and all that. That's a, the public side of real estate. And when you get outside of investing or you get into real estate development, that third ring determines what you can and cannot do or whether you're going to lose a lot of money if you don't know what you're doing. So that that's the important part of that. And I, you know, I'm a little bit more sophisticated because we deal with a lot of developers. And so that's why I spend a lot of time in that area. But for investors, first thing is to get a basic sound understanding of the fundamentals of the finance and the real estate and understanding cap rates and so forth. You know, you want to, you can go out and get the CCIM books. You don't have to study for the exam, but you can just get the CCIM, their 101 program, and get their books and read that. And it talks, tells you about cap rates and about basic finance and things like that. That's a, a good program book to use. And then learning about the properties, the most important thing there is if you're going to buy a specific property is to learn about it. What's good, what's bad, and what to avoid. And a lot of times it's better if you want to do apartments, sometimes it's better to buy into somebody's deal that does be apartments, learn from them and what they look for. Go out and buy your own uh, two or four flat. You know, as I said, I would recommend to investors to start out by investing maybe in a, a public or a fund vehicle and then maybe a private deal and then go out on your own, except for residential. Residential two and four flats are pretty, everybody knows if you own a house, it's pretty much very similar type of venture. But out, when you get outside of that four kind of area, you start getting into what I consider to be commercial real estate, and it's a different skill set. And I, I want to second that that's a good suggestion with the CCIM book. I took the CCIM 101 in 1987, but I, I still have that book. And it's an excellent reference book. They're not trying to sell you anything, like nothing down or anything like that. It's I knew being a University of Wisconsin guy that you were somehow going to like work grass camp into the uh, discussion. So, so, but thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for all. I would be alumni. So there we go. But professor awesome. grass camp for those that don't family, know was one of the uh, premier. Uh, and, and I think he set up one of the first master's programs in real estate. And it was at the university of Wisconsin. And Ralph was going to say they're probably the best, you know, real estate master's program in the, the country, but st- certainly up in the top. Uh, I, will, of you know, I will hedge that. It's between us, Berkeley and University of Pennsylvania. It really, really comes down to who you want to work for. <laughs> uh, you get out. You know, if you want to go to Wall Street, go to Wharton. And if you want, you know, want to be in real estate development or do institutional kind of real estate, you know, work for a pension fund or something, Wisconsin's great. I don't know what the specialty is for Berkeley, but they are always in the top three. Usually, I think it's because of their design school there. So maybe in development. Well, thank you very much, Ralph. We really, really appreciate the time, the knowledge, and uh, all the, the the wisdom that you provided today. Well, it was a great Loads time. of value. This is fun. Let's do it again in a year or two. Absolutely. So hopefully, yeah. I can see you at an in-person conference again. Like the last time I saw you in person was 2019 in New York. Yeah, I've been on a plane twice uh, in the past, since March. And I'm like, I was probably maybe in college. And that's a long time ago. This is the last time I haven't traveled that much. It's yeah. just, it's interesting. Yeah. And right now, we're in Chicago. It's snow, and it's like, I want to get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> trying to find out, man. You know, we have a little, we have a quote on it. And it's a really small loan. It's like $400,000. It's a part of a loan in Miami and I'm waiting for it to sign up so I have a reason to go to a property. 
<laughs> I was going to say, I, I'll do the inspection for you. if you need. I, I'll do it for free. Yeah, <laughs> we can all just meet there and do it. There we go. <laughs> so I, thank you very much again. So Adam, why don't you take us out? Sure. Yeah. Mr. Cram, thank you so much. And Michael, fantastic having you help me uh, work our way through this interview. Definitely a, a top-notch interview to say the least. So everyone, thank you for tuning in to the Nothing But Net podcast, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. I'm your host, Adam Carswell, co-host today, Michael Flight, and we were joined by Mr. Ralph Cram of Envoy Net Lease Partners. Thank you so much for investing your most valuable resource with us, your time. And we will catch you in the next episode. Thank you once again for joining us here on Nothing But Net, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. If you enjoyed what you heard today, one last friendly reminder to like, share, subscribe, or leave a review for us. It really helps a ton with the show's visibility. For the Nothing But Net team, I'm Adam Carswell. Take care. Nothing But Net. The Nothing But Net podcast is not intended to provide legal, tax counsel, or accounting advice. Adam Carswell, Michael Flight, Concordia Realty Corporation, Liberty Real Estate Fund, LLC, and their affiliates do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice or the worthiness and promotion of any particular investment. This material has been prepared for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own tax, legal, and accounting advisors before engaging in any transaction or undertaking. We highly encourage individuals and investors to seek the counsel of a qualified attorney as well as seek the counsel of a tax professional or certified public accountant to determine if there are any potential tax liabilities or consequences as a result of anything contained herein. All listeners of this podcast or video should understand that there are no guarantees of any success, outcome, or profitability of any transaction or undertaking expressed or implied and will not be liable for any financial or other losses or damages incurred as a result of any undertaking. Go to nothingbutnet.us for a complete set of disclosures. Thank you.